When I say fair, you say pay. Fair. Fair. When I say pen, you say shun. Pen. Pen. When I say strike out, you say win. Strike out. Strike out. Strike out. This is a special episode of the MPod featuring many voices. It will cover something which happened right here in Belfast the past couple of weeks and throughout the UK, the university and college union strike. Hereafter, we will refer to them as the UCU. There was an eight-day strike November 25th through December 4th here, and during this strike, professors, contract workers, students, and staff came together to protest three key issues. We interviewed several people involved in the strike at Queen's University, and today you'll hear a little bit about what they had to say why they were involved in the strike, and what the strike means to them. This is MPOD. From the Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University Belfast, this is MPOD, a podcast about conflict, peace, and justice. This program features and is led by master's students in the Conflict Transformation and Social Justice module here at Queen's. I'm Carson Cahoe. I'm Sinead Dean. I'm Morgan Mattingly. And each month, we will examine different topics relating to social justice, peace and conflict studies, and the ways they impact the world around us. I think it's important that we make a stand now so that we can fix the higher education sector, both for staff and for students. I'm here to support our professors. I feel like as a student, it's really important to be here in support of them. Um, Any issues, no matter whether it's their pension, it's being overworked, underpaid, it's the casualization that's going on, um, the gender disparity in their pay, um, whatever issue it is, it all trickles down and affects the students at the end of the day. Basically, we have around the university, UK higher education, around 60% of staff on casual contracts. We still have a lot of universities that even have zero-hour contract for both academic and academic support staff. It's really important as well, finally remember, this is not just about lecturers and professors. We also have members of what we call academic-related professions or support staff that are also on strike. Okay, so this, these problems affect all, like lots of different workers across the university and of course affect our students because our working conditions are your learning conditions. So for, for me it's partially about my own future and, and the, the future of the sector itself, but then also seeing uh, more senior colleagues and the things that are happening to them in terms of uh, their pensions and their, and their pay and, and looking at the disparity when you, you look at this kind of like splendid building. I know this is audio so people don't see the splendid building but but a lot of money goes into this place uh, lots of like hundreds of millions are spent on capital projects uh, there's senior management level here paid 300 grand and, and more a year and yet the, there's apparent justification for continual cuts and stagnation of wages cuts to pensions uh, so my name is robert murda i'm the president of nuscsi which is the national union of students in northern ireland there is also a wider point um, which is around the, who our allies are in the fight for a different type of education system um, that opposes marketization that is about putting workers rights and students rights at the forefront and we know that you see our allies in that fight so it's important that we um, you know kind of extend that hand of solidarity whenever they face issues that impact them we know that that, that impacts students and that's why that's why we're here in today's podcast we tried to get the voices of the people on strike 
I think it's also important for us to say that these aren't recordings made in someone's office. These are from the picket line in front of the Lanyon building at Queens or at a cafe, because the whole point of the strike was that the staff would not go onto university property. They would stand up for their rights by withholding service. It was their final negotiation tool. I was able to speak to so many eloquent people about what they hope to achieve through this strike action, and it's unfortunate that the podcast can only share some of what they had to say. What we hope to do today, by featuring the strike voices, is to outline this as a social justice issue. We will discuss the background reasons for the strike, highlighting the student movement that correlates, other recent changes to higher education in the UK, and why the people featured are on strike. We will offer some critique of this, but ultimately our podcast today gives a platform for the concern of where higher education in the UK is heading. I am coming to this a little bit skeptical. Um, I have been in and out of wanting to be involved throughout the process of planning and recording, um, but ultimately I have decided to stick it out for the following reason. Um, My position And whilst I have tried really hard to be objective, much of my contribution today will be personal, so please take it as such. Um, But my position is that we are interested in social justice, and therefore it would be odd to sit and ignore the way that higher education has been managed and changed in the UK over the last decade or so, especially considering the impact it is having on our learning environment, both directly in the strikes, but also the wider impact on the UK higher education network and the impact for future students who want to study what we are fortunately able to currently study now. It's difficult to break this down in a simple way as so much has happened both in government policy towards higher education and also the way universities themselves are run, but the impact on education, learning and the working conditions for academics and university workers need to be considered. Great, before we get uh, further into the meat and potatoes of the strike, what brought us to this moment? What brought higher education, the strikers who are out on the picket line for the last several days? Uh, you know, what, what's some background for this? It's really difficult to kind of highlight key areas because, as I say, it has been such a massive change to the higher education system. Sure. I think you can look at it from maybe two perspectives, but it's important to remember throughout that there is... Fortunately, a great deal of staff and student solidarity, but I think you can kind of look at it from a student perspective and then from a staff perspective, um, which I think is the easiest way to present some of the changes that have happened. So I think the biggest one to start with is um, the introduction of extreme tuition fees for students in the UK. Now, it may not seem extreme to you guys (laughs) who are coming (laughs) from a different market. American tuition fees are between $10,000 to over $50,000 a year. It depends on in-state versus out-of-state tuition, public or private, etc. But for myself, I started my undergraduate degree in 2013. This was the second year of the tuition fees, which were over £9,000 a year for students in England. Now, this is a devolved issue. So student fees were initially introduced in 1998. They were £1,000 and they were across the UK. In 1999, devolution meant each nation within the UK could set its own tuition fees Maintenance loans, tuition fee loan repayments, all of that stuff was decided through each devolved government. So I was a student living in England when I was 18 and I took out loans to go to university along with my colleagues. 
So I think, yes, the introduction of the extreme tuition fees in the UK has been a big change. They now actually increase in line with inflation. Meanwhile, the maintenance loans that students get for their living costs do not rise Mm. in line with inflation. And they are also set at an interest rate, which is incredibly terrifying. Previously, the loans before 2012 were set at the interest rate of the Bank of England plus 1%. The current interest rate of the Bank of England is 0.25%. However, the post-2012 loans were set against the retail price index and plus 3% depending on income, meaning that students who began studying after 2012 will pay about 3.1% to 6.1% on interest. In real terms, this means students will owe 8.6 billion pounds in loan interest alone within the next five years. So you can see the kind of impact that's having on students and also kind of admissions to universities. There has been further things to do with removal of bursaries and grants for vulnerable students and students who are literally working while studying. So nursing students previously had their degrees um, paid for in England. That was then taken away. And it's just the further marketization of degrees and making things like a value for money. Which I would say is very similar to the American system, which obviously everything in the American system is based on money. The average interest rate for an American loan is over 6%. Today, it can be higher than 13%. The UK is heading down that same path, it seems. In 2019 alone, US students have $1.41 trillion in outstanding student loans. That does not include interest. Yeah. yeah. All, all these issues, like you said, are financial at, at their core, uh, which makes sense based on the protests that we heard and the, the chants that we heard on the picket line. Yeah, it is a big criticism as often that we are becoming like the American university system, <laughs> which is terrible for me to have to say, but that is some, some of the language that's used around it, because I think we do look at that system of extreme fees and parents saving for college tuition before they've even had children, which is mad. Um, as I think as well, because these have been recent changes, it is something that is you know, fresh on people's minds and it isn't so ingrained into the system as yet. There have been other uh, things aimed at students where there has been funding disproportionately directed to STEM subjects. Um, And also, I mean, you both are over here on international student visas. The government's hostile environment policy towards uh, immigration and migration sees international students being included in net target migration figures. Mm -hmm. This means that this has an impact on international students in the UK and it means that we don't try and keep those incredibly talented, brainy, wonderful international students that you all are um, in the UK because we're too focused on migration figures. It's even bleeding into other big debates in the UK as well. So, I mean, that's kind of the student perspective on things. And then you move on to staff perspective and I mean I'm very much talking from what I know but there is a real change in the working conditions for staff in UK universities. So this then brings us into what the strike was and what it was about what the strikers were demanding. Let's spend a bit of time talking about that. What the staff had to say at the strike I think is very relevant here. So let's hear a little bit from them. Dominic Bryan, I'm a Professor of Anthropology at Queen's University Belfast. 
The strike is about three issues. It's about pay. Over the last uh, 10 years, we have had uh, pay offers which have been under the rate of inflation. So we've lost about 20% of our salary. That particularly impacts younger lecturers who have all got debts from their university careers who are getting paid less and less. And so it's important, particularly for us, I think, senior members of staff to come out and support that. The second is there's been a long-term degradation of our pension. Uh, and, and that's very important to fight because it's important that young members of staff have the sorts of pensions that we might, uh, we might get. And the third and perhaps the key one is the casualisation of the university. And that is when they need to fill in teaching, they get hourly paid staff, often students who've just recently got their PhDs, to fill in for staff when really those people should be getting full paid salaries and those three issues are the, the core ones for which we're on strike at the moment. Okay, so it seems like they're talking about three main issues. Let's break it down a little bit. The first one that we should look at is pension. My name is Mirab Amir. I'm a senior lecturer in human geography here at Queen's. I'm also the president of UCU, the union for lectures and support staff. The big dispute has to do with pensions. Now, we should remember that pensions are deferred pay. So basically we're talking about, again, employment conditions and, uh, and pay. And what the university has been trying to do was to uh, devalue our pensions because they are working together with the uh, pension regulator to claim that our pension scheme is not sustainable and that we should increase our contributions and decrease the pension that we get on retirement. So this is an ongoing dispute. We were on strike last year and uh, won some of our goals then, but uh, this is, uh, it hasn't been resolved completely and we're still uh, fighting for that. That was why they were on strike mm-hmm. last year. and it really had a lot of impact on how they even came to be striking this time and why they added more reasons to be on strike this time. We actually got a great amount of information from the staff themselves who were out on the picket line. So my name is Viviane Grave and I'm a lecturer in European politics here at Queen's. Last time around it was just for our pensions that were going to be asked by like 40%. Um, this time it's about pensions again because we thought we'd won and we're seeing the employers like go back on um, what we were supposed to have agreed. Um, and it's also about the broader issues that we're really starting talking among our colleagues. Because when you're on the picket line with people, you finally realize that all the issues that you're facing individually, actually it's more of a structural issues and we're all facing this. Uh, so in addition to issues of pension is the idea of casualization the casualization of work contracts for uh, university lecturers, which generally refers to the process whereby universities keep uh, lecturers on a fixed-term contract that do not afford them the same benefits that a tenured professor would have. It's not the issue of just fixed-term contracts. It's actually that of no contract at all. A lot of lecturers are being brought in on zero hours contracts or for one-off lectures. In some cases, they can be paid a very nominal fee, sometimes as low as £25 for an hour of teaching um, that they may have then spent more than 
four or five hours preparing just for the one lecture. There's also the issue of very low contracts of maybe 0.2 or 0.3 hour contracts. And what does that mean when you say... So that means that you would be part-time, being only offered part-time roles. A large part of this is coming from different policies that have been enacted over the past few years that have really changed the direction of employment and conditions for lecturers. So one of these is the research excellence framework. I'd say that this has the biggest impact on the casualization that the strikes were talking about. The research excellence framework is, its stated aims are to provide accountability for public investment in research, establish reputational yardsticks, and thereby to achieve an efficient allocation of resources. What it does is it basically measures every, I think it's every five years, the research output from universities and assesses the impact of that on an undefined audience. It really undermines academic freedom and it also has a huge impact on staff. And the Times Higher Education revealed that some universities appeared to be gaming the REF system and there's something called REF poaching, basically where they were going around finding staff who had great research records and were headhunting these staff from their universities right before the REF deadlines, giving the institution that poached the staff member the full credit for their research without having actually supported them through this or taking the risk of putting that research out in the first place. So, you know, when you go with a proposal it's quite difficult to get funded, but then essentially a university will come around and steal all your credit. It also included universities employing large numbers of staff on 0.2 fixed term contracts, meaning like part-time contracts. Mm. This is the lowest level of employment that qualifies them for a ref submission. So basically the jobs that are out there now are often part-time positions, which not everyone wants, but it means the universities can cut down their costs while still claiming all of the benefits from that. So that's a huge reason why casualisation has increased in UK universities. As this relates to Queen's, it's a little bit different though. Yeah, so I'm not sure if REF has come to Northern Ireland. I know it's definitely the case in England. As Queen's is part of the UK higher education system, it will have an impact in that sense on how lecturers can work within UK higher education system. Yeah, having listened to multiple speeches at uh, the picket line, it was really interesting to hear that 67% of the staff at Queen's are in that casualization category. Mm -hmm. They have zero contact hours or are on short-term contracts where it's very unstable. And actually, what's horrifying about that number is that it took them a couple of years to even find that out. When we started this campaign about centralized staff four years ago, we turned to the university and asked them, how many people do you employ on all of these irregular contracts? And they didn't know. They had no idea who was employed on which contracts, what they were paid, and uh, under which conditions. It took them uh, the better part of three years to try and uh, resolve that uh, mystery, try and resolve that puzzle. And now they're looking at at least uh, uh, switching at least some of of the people who are on uh, all these atypical contracts uh, and providing them with uh, a fractional contract. We're very happy with that, with that uh, progress. We're very happy that Uh, the university is willing to take those steps, but that's only the first step. 
obviously, if the university needs this, the, uh, needs more people to run its programs, to run, uh, to teach, and to do research, these people should come in as full members of staff on regular contracts. I think the zero hours contracts are really interesting because a lot of the times people are paid for only their teaching time, not any of their prep time or the work that goes into it. So that's a really big part of zero hours contracts. Yeah. So this all ties into uh, another one of the complaints that the strikers brought up, which is workload. If we continue on the path that we're going down with increasing casual contracts, with staff taking time off due to stress because of uh, you know unmanageable uh, workloads, with attacks on pays and pensions which aren't attracting the best and brightest people into the profession, then I think we're going down a really dark rabbit hole in terms of the future of our education system. So I actually think we have no choice but to stand in solidarity and to support this strike. All of the strikers, the staff members talked about teaching lectures of two to four hundred students, not having access to the resources that they need to provide the, their students with uh, you know, their best work. is all tied to this uh, issue, as, as you were saying, and so a lot of the protesters um, and strikers would, would mention this. Kiva Nigonal gave a great speech. Casual contacts means a lack of resources. I remember one student coming up to me at a point and saying, when are your office hours? <laughs> I was going, where's my office? Um, I have written and convened modules from my bedroom because the university has offered me no place to write. And I'm not talking about tutoring, I'm talking about convening modules, writing exam papers, um, putting together reading lists. Uh, does not give us a place to do that. It doesn't respect us. It allows us to come in, teach their students and slink back home. Uh, it means a lack of resources. I remember not having library access one time, so having to ask my students to print off the reading list so I could teach them. A total lack of resources. How can we provide quality education when we can't even read what the students are being asked to? And actually, a further area that I think is really important to talk about is the teaching excellence framework, because as you say, uh, lectures are really targeted for having to teach lectures and do their work with little resources and uh, little support. Over the past few years, uh, the Teaching Excellence Framework, again, mainly in England, but also in some universities across Scotland and Wales, although I believe soon to be perhaps um, brought into Northern Ireland, universities will get a gold or silver or a bronze medal, depending on their teaching quality. Like, like a literal like medal? Not a literal medal, but you know, they'll get to put it on their <laughs> websites. A virtual medal, which is quite infantilizing to begin with. I was actually in the process of, of focus groups around the introduction of the Teaching Excellence Framework, and it was very disappointing when it was introduced because there was a unanimous feeling in the room that I was in that it was a terrible piece of policy and especially the link within the Teaching Excellence Framework. So essentially, if your university gets rated a gold, there is talks, I think, from next year that universities will be able to raise their tuition fees above the £9,250 limit because you've got a gold teaching standard. But if you've got a bronze teaching standard, you'll be less than £9,250 per year, which will impact your ability to fund your university because of the cuts elsewhere. So this is going to put massive pressure on staff to be the absolute best that they can be. I don't understand how they're going to do that when they already are having huge cuts to their resources, their time. We have some of the best lecturers in the world in the UK. Like for me, it's one of the things I'm actually proud to be 
from the UK when I think of the higher education system. And I'm just terrified that it will mean that people will go elsewhere and will lose that and students of the future won't get those opportunities to come to a UK university and learn. And one of the key points is that the stress of trying to be excellent all the time is really detrimental to the professors. It makes the mental health very questionable. Yeah, I mean, as students, there's there's always talk about uh, cuts to mental health funding and uh, cuts to uh, counseling resources and how that always impacts the students. And a lot of the strikers pointed out that these are all the same issues that are impacting them. What else does casual contract means? It means loneliness. As was pointed out, there are over 2,000 casual members of staff in this university and the university didn't even know who they were. You don't have the opportunity to go and teach and then go out afterwards and speak to people, you know, like speak to colleagues what your life's like. You're lonely. You come in and you go home. And that has a massive impact on your mental health and mental well-being. Casual contracts are a disaster for mental health and mental well-being. I'm sure everybody remembers being in school and being told that when you had a degree, the employers would come knocking your door down. Not so much. It's definitely something where it's not even a case of the access to the services. I think it's actually the the creation of the environment itself, Mm -hmm. which is impacting mental health of staff. I know that Queen's has uh, the sign-up that says 78% of students are concerned about their mental health. It would be interesting to find out the same statistics for staff members. Because I think, as we've talked about with uh, casualisation and workload, a lot of this is incredibly isolating for lecturers and staff members. I don't know, it's, it's, it's just a scary environment. And I think what the strike has done, though, is really brought a sense of shared purpose mm. and solidarity between students and staff, but also amongst staff themselves. And it's started these conversations, which is so important to have. Yeah, the reason they included casualization this time was because zero contract workers had come to the strike last time and revealed how horrible the conditions were. Mm. And by talking to each other in that shared space, that shared public space, they were able to find out what all of these issues are, how it's affecting every single person. And there was also this amazing point that that horrible experience when you're first getting started and working on your PhD or you've just gotten your PhD and your new staff mm-hmm. and, oh, it's like hazing. Here's a bit from Jim Donaghy. Yes, I'm the membership secretary with UCU at QUB. There's some notion that this is a, a rite of passage, toughen up, get through it, we all did it, you should too. That's not acceptable. That kind of discourse needs to stop. This is not a rite of passage, it is exploitation. There were staff who had been on these zero contract hours for 18 years yeah. before they got anywhere. That was mm-hmm. and such they, a key point. They call it the, the normalization of exploitation. So this mindset is this is not something that we should be putting ourselves through. Yeah, and I think just there talking about moving from PhD to being in academia, I think it's really important to note how disparity in funding for research and PhDs across universities, STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and maths will always get more funding currently than arts and humanities subjects and there is always more staff positions in these areas. I don't unfortunately have the statistics in front of me, but I would challenge you to find me ones that don't match what I'm saying. But just in regards to PhDs amongst the wider education boards, 
there's space for many, many, many arts and humanities PhDs, but when it comes to the teaching positions, those aren't there. It's interesting, too, what you say. As the strikers outlined in, in the, in the picket line, they said it's it's not an issue of uh, what money the universities actually have available, but where they put that money. Oh, yeah. And pointed to, there are quotes of, uh, you know, investing in buildings, but disinvesting in, in staff. The strike really revolves around, I suppose, four issues formally, but more fundamentally than that, really is to do with where universities are going and what they're about focus on universities is increasingly towards pulling in money, making fancy buildings, pulling in international students, all revolving around monetizing the whole system. And all of that's being done at the expense of the quality of teaching. They all are rooted in the marketization of the university. And I think it's absolutely fantastic that we're striking explicitly on casualization this time. We're striking explicitly on the gender and ethnicity pay gaps. Um, and the issues around pension and pay and all the rest of it are core. But I, I just think it's really inspiring and really important that those issues that have been so long brushed under the carpet are now front and centre. And this links back to the commodification of education. Since the fees have been introduced and since students have been having to pay these fees, there's been a conversation that students now expect more from universities. And unfortunately, that more seems to be, like you say, the flashy buildings, the resources, and not the actual quality of the teaching, which should be the main focus. So that is, again, links to the commodification of the education system since the real raise in fees. The university may treat itself like a business, but academia is not meant to be a business. It's meant to be about the furthering of knowledge. The university is saving costs on the backs of people who are coming in to teach, who are coming in to do research, who are coming in to support. We need to pressure our university to take bold steps and invest in the staff that is needed for our teaching, is needed for our research, instead of finding a halfway solution. And this has become a political issue within the UK, and I'm sure you can probably hear that in my voice, but... This is now something that at every election, students are looking to manifestos to see who will promise them less fees, who will change this education system and why things are the way they are at the moment. And it's, it's meant a lot to people over the, over the past decade. And I think that's an important point, and that tying in with the issue of the austerity measures that you had talked about uh, coming in after 2008. An important point that the strikers got across was that this is not an issue of negotiating for a few extra percentage points in, in a raise, or or it, it, it's not something that can be neatly tied up uh, relating you know specifically to these these issues of casualization uh, etc these problems that these uh, staff are facing issues of isolation and overwork are endemic to a financial system that they're claiming is built on extracting as much really money as possible from these staffers and as they say on, on the on the picket line having the staffers bear the brunt of these austerity measures and uh, this process of commodification of education i don't know about you but part of the reason why i chose to come to a university in the uk was that the cost is lower <laughs> um from an american perspective yeah. that yeah. that is a huge thing and if we look at the, n- the number of international students who are now targeted as sources of income, yeah, yeah, fully, it's 
amazing to look at that. Like the the fees for us here are sixteen thousand pounds, mm-hmm. which for the same degree that I'm getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on top of seven hundred pounds ish uh, to get the tier four visa. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I mean that the tier the tier four visa is something that is up for a lot of discussion because it's been so politicized and how it's been used. And I mean, no sort of calling out for you guys, but you're quite lucky because you're from the United States. I mean, you have the benefit anyway that English is your native language. So there's already that kind of requirement that you don't have to meet. Other students have to pay for English exams and meet certain English requirements, have their grades sometimes translated across or have to reset exams completely in order to come here and that's sometimes people that have come over as children and done their exams in a different country and then they're now living here with their families and then when they try to access the higher education system they're classed as international students and have to reset exams so I mean there's a whole bunch of issues related to international students and like you say international students being used as sources of income for universities. And the thing about international students is that Americans are targeted as international students, but Mm. also students from Asia are. And as that relates to English, there are programs specifically at nearly every university nowadays where they will teach you English. That program is specifically through the university so that you can get accepted into programs. And it's really hard to do like a master's or a PhD in a foreign language. So the system where they have to take English, they have to adjust to an entirely different education system, that's almost colonializational. One of the points that was made is that there's this perspective that students must leave home to get a worthwhile degree, which is part of why international students will come here. That this university and universities across the UK go out to the world in the name of internationalization and recruit international students. They make the hard sell that UK education gives us a very good future. But today we stand and the world is watching that this is not the case. Why is it not the case? It's not because our lecturers are not putting in the effort. It is because the workload is impossible. It is because they are unable to give international students who form 50% of postgraduate population in universities the feedback, the support, that we are told is available to us when they make the sell. Mm. There's not the same level of support. And actually, when we take this back to the strikes and consider how international academics are targeted, and so in the strike movement, international academics on certain visas weren't actually able to go on strike because of their visa requirements, which meant that they can't stand in solidarity with their colleagues, and they're even more targeted by the issues of casualization, pensions, workload, etc., and the conditions of being in a university. And that's not even taking into consideration further issues which have kind of been a split off from this strike to do with the gender pay gap in universities and the racial pay gap in, and the dis- disability pay gap and, you know, pay gaps based on identities. It's just really frustrating. I mean, we all study social justice, we've all come here to look at these issues and it's frustrating to exist within a system where injustices like gender, racial and disability pay gaps exist. I wanted to point out a 
quote that I heard from uh, Kiva. Anybody who is an academic knows that passion, knows that feeling, knows that bit where you find something and going, I'm going to change the world through this. And the university's taken that passion and manipulated it in order to exploit your casual workers, those people who've done PhDs, who just want to teach, who want to learn, who want to know more, and will go, we'll underpay you, we will exploit you, we will make your life really difficult, and we know you'll do it because you have that passion. It's an absolute disgrace. It's a very short leap from a student's perspective to take these sorts of issues and see the ways that they are mirrored in our own experiences. And that's why the higher education system is losing so many really brilliant people, because it takes so long for them to reach a point where they're appreciated, where they get the necessary backing for all of the research that they're trying to do and what they're trying to contribute. There was a speech made about the fact that someone who had worked years and years for a PhD decided it was better to be a shop worker mm. because it was more stable. Mm -hmm. I just want to read a quote from a PhD student. Before starting teaching, I worked as a student, but I have decided to return to my shop work. And this is because my shop work gave me the opportunity to have a pension, a permanent contract, and also have control over my life. This is not the case I had as a teacher in university. I hate being a shop worker, but I have to do it because it gives control over my life. Today we stand together because as postgraduate students, as PhD students, as researchers, as postgraduate taught students in the university, we expect more. The university is seen as a prestigious institution, yet we prefer to do shop work, to have permanent contracts that enable us have access to a mortgage. It enables us to have job security. It enables us to know that we were guaranteed of our next pay. Whereas being a teacher in university does not allow us to have these guarantees. And I think as well, as much as we're looking at this and the impact of austerity on the higher education sector and that particular example with the shop worker, I mean, the impact on of austerity on the public sector more generally, and you talk about these issues, and we don't exist as an island, and, mm -hmm. you know, the higher education system is a part of the public sector in the UK, and it mm -hmm. is crucial to understand that because it's fantastic that our lecturers can go out and are able to be a part of the union. I know that all of them didn't want to strike. All of them want conversations, and they were very clear about that, that striking was a last resort, mm -hmm. and that actually the conversations that they had with university staff and you know top people in a higher education policy those conversations they wanted a positive result from that but ultimately there has to be a unionization and uniting of people and force to make this change and mm -hmm. that's what I hope to see across the public sector I'm not talking about strikes I'm just talking yeah. about people coming together and making change because the way that things are going is so detrimental and it's in every aspect we've been negotiating or urging our employers to negotiate with us 
without having to 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 strike, without having to declare a dispute, uh, because I think nobody wants. You know, nobody wants the the universities to be on strike. But nobody wants the lecturers to walk out. So we've been urging our employers to, to negotiate with us, and we've been also mobilizing our uh, a, our members locally to run local campaigns to uh, engage with staff that isn't uh, unionized to engage with their students to uh, because a lot of the success of any any industrial action any dispute like this is dependent on the level of support that you have from your members from their immediate communities from the public at large and uh, and the way it is presented uh, more generally we as the students are the people who are having an impact of this in terms of the strikes. Mm -hmm. In other areas, it's patients or it's, you know, people who need the police to turn up on their doors or people in a tower block that sets on fire. Austerity is massively impacting life in the UK and changing the way that we know things. And I don't want to talk too much about this because I'll get (laughs) emotional, but it's, it's really bad. And and it's important to note, I think, that these strikes were happening concurrently with strikes in in the health industry. The strikers on the the picket line in front of Queens talked about nurses who are also going on strike uh, for all the same reasons that they were. They can't provide to their patients the quality of care that they want to. And this is unheard of. Like, nurses do not strike because ultimately their duty of care is towards their patients. So for the Royal College of Nursing Union to call a strike in Northern Ireland because of how poor management is running services over here and the impact that that is having on patients, that is unheard of, Mm -hmm. phenomenal. I think what was really interesting about being at the strike at certain points was to hear from all of the other unions who are supporting the strike. Yeah, yeah. Everyone was there in solidarity. I think that was a key word that kept coming up again and again and again, mm-hmm. that we are here to support you because this is something that's going to affect more than just you. It's been cold, but I haven't felt that cold. I think uh, solidarity warms the heart, you know? I think as well, I know that you've both said that this was quite a different thing for you guys, that you wouldn't have this in, in the States, but it's been quite different for me because growing up, the way that unions had evolved the only strikes would be on transport on the Mm. trains whereas now there are more um a couple of weeks ago the strike for a raise in pay for mcdonald's workers so there is a a movement towards it and i think it's good that staff and universities have come together and even though it's not what they want to do Mm -hmm. and it's the last resort that it's clearly effective because we're all sat around talking about it as we had mentioned earlier, you know, the parallels that are being drawn between uh, the higher education system here in the UK and mm. fears that it'll, it'll be similar to the education system in the United States, everything that you were talking about, Sinead, about Ref and Tef, mirror in a funny way a lot of uh, sorts of goalposts yeah. uh, that are tied to funding for public education in, in, uh, on the secondary level yeah. in the United States. 
I grew up in the midst of, of, you know, school board meetings and concerns about cutting this class or that class and not being able to offer certain advanced classes. Performance on, you know, standardized tests is, is being linked to school fundings. Yeah, and I'm sure, just quickly, it's not a funny way. I'm sure it's actually probably based on it. Like, yeah. Probably literally modeled on it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. There were quite a few things also having been at the strikes that were notable to mention. For example, that the leaders of the strike tend to be disproportionately related to the humanities. Hmm, yeah. yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's definitely related to the disproportionate funding for STEM subjects as opposed to the humanities. So they've probably got more to be annoyed about quite fairly. But yeah, no, definitely. The impact that that then has on classes that run is that those of us in the arts and humanities subjects are missing probably more classes, but also it means that there's not a sort of university-wide solidarity, which means it's easier to break things like the strike. There were professors who had to break the strike because they've had conferences or meetings scheduled for months that they couldn't not do. I have just heard from professors who didn't think it should, should have been happening, thought that it was just interrupting their work. Uh, so it's definitely fair to say that the, the UCU was not representative of all of the university staff. No, I mean, obviously the UCU works on a ballot system, so the, the yeah. staff were balloted. So I think it's yeah. important to say that. And I think as well, in terms of support, I think a lot of lecturers support the work that the UCU does. But as we said before, the strike is obviously like a last resort on yeah. that. And when you say balloted... They sent a vote out to all of their members to, to vote on the strike. And not every person or professor or staff at Queen's is part of the UCU. There are a couple of other unions yeah. as well. Some courses will have specific unions related to if it's a professional course, they might still be in their professional union as opposed to the educational union. And of course, as international students, by not having classes, there's a monetary loss kind of associated with that, which is part of the problem, I think. Yeah, like a frustration that I had. I wasn't actually at university last year, but I had some friends still studying and there was a much wider movement last year, it felt, to go directly to the top echelons of universities and demand their fees back, which I think is, as much as it feeds into the debate around commodification of education, it does actually do what, the strike is intending to which is ruffled the top feathers and I, I was frustrated that that didn't happen this year mainly because would I like the money no <laughs> well I mean it's what I would have liked the class but yeah, yeah. but full yeah. support and, the strike we didn't get what we paid for and uh, there's a feeling among a lot of a lot of students that I've talked to and I personally am of the opinion that I, I don't blame the university staff at all yeah. for this. you know the strikers say themselves they would rather not be striking yeah. they'd rather be teaching but they need to strike so that they can teach. We've tried to explain to students that this is not against them. We're unhappy with the fact that we need to strike. We would much rather just do our jobs. And we definitely don't want to harm their uh, progression in any way. But we need to do it because we don't have any other choice. If we're breaking it down on mathematical numbers, which is not my specialty, but I've been told that for international students, it's £257 per class missed, which is a pretty significant figure. So if we were to demand that on a larger perspective, because there is a huge international population at Queen's, it could be quite powerful. I think it's more just kind of that 
thing of if they want to commodify education, then this is what happens. Then you owe us something in return. And by they, I mean the people at the top. There was a lack of communication around some of this. I think at some universities, students were even told by staff that they would be breaking the law if they uh, joined the lecturers on the picket line or if they didn't come to classes, they would be penalised. Their attendance records would be marked as such. And I think that there wasn't a big movement, I didn't feel, to support students in that either. Not until it actually happened. I know a lot of it, you know, happens on the day and we can't save for that but I think there should have been some stronger pieces of information from UCU to to support that because I think it confused a lot of students and ultimately most students I think do support the lecturers but we need to know how to support and what we can do and our position in this as well so I think that that was something I would have liked to have seen as better communication. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I do credit the UCU with doing is trying to run a, an alternative university during this time, which they have a number of programs talking about the colonization of universities and a number of other subjects, mental health. So just for context, this was um, at Queen's University. It wasn't something sort of run nationally, but it is something that I think a lot of universities did run. But it was a program of alternative university lectures, which kind of showed that it wasn't staff not wanting to teach. It was Mm -hmm. the conditions in which they are having to teach currently are not suitable and therefore it was a protest towards that and it was it was great yeah and it's not even on queen's campus at all they went to to a cafe Mm -hmm. and had conversations there they had panels uh that brought in a number of people from a couple of different backgrounds so i think there are obviously criticisms of it i think ultimately though it's really important to stress I mean, my position anyway is that I'm very supportive of the strikes and the wider conversations around changing the current commodification of higher education in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Don't know what you guys are, but that's me. Yeah. Yeah. Similar perspective. I'll say on record, ditto. We'll let you stay then. <laughs> in full transparency, we want to tell you how we made this podcast. It was not a unanimous decision among our team. There was a lot of debate about whose voice should or should not be included, and this decision was not made lightly. To be fully transparent, we decided to include a bit of dialogue on this choice. MPOD as a podcast has put a lot of work into this particular episode, uh, and it's been rather unusual. Joining us now is a member of MPOD, Catherine Blake, who was out on the picket line interviewing protesters and talking with uh, members of the uh, UCU. And she has some thoughts on on how we went about this. So thank you for, for joining us, Catherine. Yes, Hi. Thank you. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Carson. Hi. Hi, Sinead. <laughs> so I went out onto the picket line uh, with Morgan, and we were talking to some of the people on the picket line who were protesting. When then when we came back and we all got together, I realized when we were talking that we were not going to go and interview or even offer to interview anybody from the employer side, from the universities UK. And I made it really clear that I totally disagreed with that decision. So we decided that the best thing to do, having talked about it for a while, we decided the best thing to do was take a vote. And I I voted for offering to talk to Universities UK, at least sending them an email and asking them if they wanted to talk to us. But I lost um, seven to three in the group. Um, But I still feel very strongly, even though I've listened to everybody, I still feel very, very strongly that in order for 
a program to be a whole program you need to talk to everybody you need all the voices involved that's the way journalism works yes as someone who has done journalism in the past i understand your point of view i appreciate the idea of including the uk however as we were going through this process speaking to all of the people we spoke to and Personally, my alignment is very much against the UK, or at least their supposed position. And it was tough to imagine going into that conversation and being fair. I didn't think it was possible for me. Perhaps it would have been possible for you. But to focus instead on the people that we have connections with, the people that we are able to relate to in this podcast, I thought was maybe a good decision. The way that my brain works on this process is that if we had included the UK, we are giving another platform for them because they have all of the resources. They have all of the power. I think, um, yeah, that would definitely be my position is I wasn't keen on giving UK a platform through the actual time of the strike. This is still very much as much as we are now post-strike. We are still within the talks, within the action. There's speak uh, of lecturers taking on further action in terms of working to rote, so not doing any extra duties to continue the impact of the strike, which obviously would be um, essentially us giving UK a platform through the strike conditions and also undermining the contributions from the from the people that you spoke to on the picket line, which I think it wouldn't have been fair to come add their voices to something and then also have UK without telling them that, first of all. I think that that would have been something that I would have preferred in that, which is why I was, I was also against it. Similarly to Morgan and Sinead's thoughts, I really thought about this in two ways. Uh, the first of which is that This is a talk show, really. It's a talk podcast. It's about our thoughts, our analyses, and it is not as as much about journalism. Because I I otherwise tend to agree that we, you know, you do need to include both sides. But that, you know, we're not, we're, we're reporting, but we're not doing the actual, you know, printing in a newspaper type journalism, uh, which feeds into uh, my second thought, which is, what does the discourse and those involved in it benefit or and lose from our decision to include or not to include certain voices? Our decision not to include UUK does not deprive UUK of voice in this overall debate, in the, in the debate about unionization of, of uh, professors and marketization yeah. on campus. They, as Morgan said, they still have their platforms. They still get their voices out and, and have a power structure behind them that the striking professors and university staff don't. So that was my opinion on it. What I thought was really brilliant in the whole thing was that even though we disagreed, we were able to talk about it and actually didn't get very heated or anything. So (laughs) that was, I thought that was quite good. I loved the fact that having spent 20 years as a journalist, I suddenly found myself in a position where I was having to think in a completely different way about something which I would have always held very dear as in you know this is a rule which cannot be broken and I still feel that Um, I made my position very clear that I disagreed with it I still disagree with it if we're 
analyzing our perspective and how we've gone about creating this podcast, that it, it is crucial to look at the choice we made not to include them. I think that means that we are focusing on one aspect of this social justice issue. I think we're using the wrong word by saying include. We're very much including them in the podcast. We're just not giving them a voice like Carson was saying. I was actually not so opposed to approaching UK. There were some other employers that I was not, I would not have done this if they were approached because I think that they, there is an element of using things like this to further certain agendas and I perhaps am quite sceptical of how that would have been done. Yeah, I mean, it's something that you always have to be wary of is that when one is endeavouring to have all the voices and to listen to all sides, you you are aware all the time that some people will just use that as an opportunity to whatever, to get their agenda out or portray themselves in a way that is maybe not quite real. And I think if we're talking of voices and agendas, I think... Actually, the reason why these strikes have happened is because staff within universities have felt that their voices haven't been heard mm-hmm. over the past decade or so exactly. and haven't had their their input listened to or taken on board and haven't had a say in this process which we've been speaking about within the marketization of higher education within the UK. So I think actually to, to me there was no loss in giving them the sole platform on this occasion thank you again thanks. for coming in thanks for sharing your thoughts Catherine. and we'll see you around see you soon thank you i think the final question our listeners may have is what were the results of the strike we don't actually have an answer yet the employers did agree to return to negotiations with the ucu after the strike so we have some final words from mirab amir I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't know if we'll manage to get any uh, satisfying results immediately uh, during the strike or right after the strike. These are all very complicated issues. These are all things that need a long-term commitment on behalf of the employers because they touch on the the principles according to which the universities are managed. So they demand, in a way, a restructuring of the way management thinks about employment and management thinks about staff to be adequately addressed. So I think this is all a bit complicated to solve in one go. So it might take a little longer than an eight-day strike to to solve it. But I am optimistic that the, the employers that have seen how committed members are to those goals, that they will see that they can't get away with just brushing these issues aside. It's time for our next segment. Please welcome Lindsay. Down the login in a bubble. Hello everyone, I'm Lindsay Hargrave doing this week's segment of Down the Login in a Bubble. On this episode, we have been discussing the university and college union strike. To continue this theme, recommended resources will be on current and historical strikes with links to the resources being shared on our social media, so stay tuned for that information at the end. So let's get into it. My first recommendation would be episode 658 of NPR's Planet Money, 
which discusses the General Motors strike in the 1930s as a turning point in America, where unions gained more legitimacy and power against all odds during the Great Depression. This podcast is relatively short at only 20 minutes and very informative on the past and current state of unions in America. My next couple recommendations are great articles summarizing some of the strikes, which are simultaneously going on around the world. First, an article titled Macron, Pension Reform, France Paralyzed by Biggest Strike in Years from the BBC, which outlines the strikes currently progressing across France over President Macron's proposed replacement of the pension system. More than 800,000 people across 100 cities in France have attended these demonstrations, and it's a pretty great overview of what's going on there and why they're protesting. Our next article comes from Helen Reagan, Joshua Berlinger, Jesse Yugen, and Ben Westcott at CNN, covering the protests in Hong Kong. Titled, Citywide Strikes Bring Hong Kong to a Standstill, this article provides some excellent reporting on the first general industrial action in Hong Kong in over 50 years. It was called in support of the pro-democracy demonstrations. While this article is from the general strike in August 2019, it provides greater context for the new strike called on December 9, 2019. It will be interesting to see how the workers' support may or may not have changed toward these protracted protests. The next two recommendations are both excellent podcasts detailing the origins and ongoing efforts in the climate strike. From The Guardian's Today in Focus podcast, Anushka Athsen and Joshua Watts present a compelling interview with founder of the climate strike, Greta Thunberg, where she recounts her journey to becoming the face of a global movement. Additionally, the Hip Hop Caucus and America's Climate Change podcast, Think 100%, interview three young leaders and activists from the United States, mobilizing others to join them in the climate strike. Jamie Margolin, 17, Katie Ader, 20, and Sohela Eldeeb, 18, discuss how their own organizations are organizing youth to help stop and reverse the effects of climate change. You'll find all these resources on our social media. Our Twitter and Instagram are at QBMPod. If you have some resources you think we should share or any suggestions for the MPod team's later episodes, please email us. Thanks for joining us for this segment of Down the Login in a Bubble. I'm Lindsay Hargrave. We would like to thank all the people who lent their voices to this podcast. In particular, Marava Mir, Jim Donahy, Dominic Bryan, Vivian Garvey, Robert Murda, and Keevan Nigonal and everyone else on the picket line who took the time to speak with us or gave permission to use their voice. And of course, thank you to Stephen Mullen for his endless assistance. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us. If you liked this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at QUBMPod and Instagram at QUBMPod. Do you have something to add or any questions to ask? Please feel free to share your feedback and comments with us at mpodmitchell at gmail.com. Here at MPOD, we discuss important issues, but they're not always easy to talk about, and we recognize that they might be sensitive for some listeners. We'd like to remind all listeners that Queen's Wellbeing Service offers a drop-in service every weekday during term time between 12.30 and 1.30 p.m. You can also contact the Wellbeing Service at 02890-972-893 or by email at studentwellbeing at qub.ac.uk. 
This podcast represents the perspective of the students involved in the program and the people interviewed in the podcast. We understand that this is not representative of all the students at Queen's or at the Mitchell Institute. MPOD is a production of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University Belfast. Once again, thank you for listening.